The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Welcome to another edition of the Valentine's Views Podcast, Giants fans. I'm your host, Ed Valentine, and on today's show, we are going to focus on a topic that no one in Giants land cares about these days and that no one has cared about for the last couple of years. We're going to focus on the quarterback topic, and to to help us with that, I'm going to bring in special guest Matt Waldman, one of the most knowledgeable quarterback people that I know. And Matt joins us right now. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing great, Ed. Thanks for having me on again. I, I heard you kind of chuckle there in the background when I said no Giants fan cares about quarterback. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I appreciate your sense of humor. Well, you know, nobody... I mean, I'm not a comedian, but, you know, we got to try to have some fun around here. Right. You know, exactly. And hopefully we'll have a good uh, have a good time talking about these prospects, because even though this is not seen as the, the most amazing class out there, there's some interesting players here who could develop. I know. And, and you know, um, you know, Mark Schofield does some work for me. He does some work for you, and he's been going through some of these guys. So we're, you know, we're, we're for us. So we're familiar with them a little bit. But yeah, I, you know, to be honest with you, I got to get someone else's take other than Mark's because I'm really tired of of Mark kneeling at the altar of Brett Rippin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, Mark is a great guy, so he's fun to also poke fun at as well. And and he, you know, he does incredibly strong work as a quarterback, um, an analyst. And so it's kind of it's kind of funny because you you may find that if we get on that topic of Brett Rippon, that I may actually also be on that bandwagon. But um, but I don't. But Mark has definitely milled the milled the wood and built the built the wagon. So, I, you know, we can leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 let's start here. the The Giants' brain trust. Obviously, they the Giants have the sixth overall pick. We hear Dave Gettleman talk a lot about value. We hear Pat Shermer talk about it. We hear John Mara talk about. 
you know, yes, we want a quarterback. Yes, we want to follow the quote-unquote Kansas City model and all of that. And yet we want value at the sixth pick. If it's Dwayne Haskins or Drew Locke, which are the two guys that would be considered at six if they're still on the board, is that value in your mind or are those guys who who in an ideal world just you know wouldn't be going that early in a draft yeah i i don't think it's value to get those guys i think you can get better a better prospect later maybe better prospects plural later as in maybe the second round if they have ivan kept track for the giants have a second round pick but if they do in the early second round or they can trade up into the end of the first round then I think they may be getting value at that position there because Haskins and Locke, Haskins I would prefer over Locke, and I think he might be worth that pick. The problem is, as we know, he's only played one year, and that inexperience is is not so much because he hasn't played a lot that we're worried that he's not as good as he's shown. It's just that we haven't seen a complete comfort level of what he can or can't do. And that's a subtle difference, but that's that's an important difference. You know, it's interesting. So let's talk about Dwayne Haskins a little bit more in depth here. The one thing, obviously, you mentioned the experience. It's one year. You know, Kyler Murray's a one-year guy. I think Mitchell Trubisky was a one-year guy. And I know, I, what was the old Bill Parcells rule? I don't remember how many starts yeah, it was. Two, yeah, two years. Two years. But the thing that worries me more about Dwayne Haskins, more than the experience, is, to be honest, is, is the mobility. Because I look at a 21-year-old Dwayne Haskins, and everybody talks about Eli Manning isn't very mobile and, and and this and that, but I look at a 21-year-old Dwayne Haskins and a 38-year-old Eli Manning, and to be honest with you, I quite honestly don't see a whole lot of difference in the way that those guys move around, and that bothers me. Yeah, and that's absolutely a fact with that, and that's why some people, if we were just going to stick the conversation between Haskins and Locke, people might prefer Locke, but the issue is, is, if you're building a team and you want to build it the right way, then you're going to make the the commitment that you also need an offensive line and that maybe your quarterback, your young quarterback, won't play year one. And hopefully you'll have built up your offensive line enough that he can function as a, as a good drop-back quarterback in year two, year three, and that line will continue to improve to the point that he's just not – He's not getting punished on a on a regular basis because, you know, you look at a and we'll talk about Locke in a little bit. But with Haskins, the thing is, is if you give him the time in the pocket, he can climb from pressure. He can reduce the shoulder. He can keep his feet in a balanced position to deliver an accurate ball. And when you look at his accuracy, you know, I've charted, I think, 10 games of his. And you can see I mean, you can I can definitely see, you know, he's. I've used charting based on NFL next-gen stat statistical data to track different thresholds for ranges of the field. So I look at things like all his on-platform throws, all of his off-platform throws, whether all of his throws where he's on the move, the throws that he makes to the opposite hash, and I also even track them according to pressure and without pressure, and I do it for things like the short area of the field, the intermediate, 
the vertical range to me, which is like within about, um, you know, which is from about 29 yards to 42 yards. And then the deep range, which is the, the extreme deep past like 42 yards. And I look at, you know, the flat sideline in the middle of the field for all of those. So it's a lot of combinations of things. And, and Haskins certainly showed good accuracy, strong accuracy in the middle, like the short and intermediate ranges of the field. Um, and then he showed some promise with his opposite hash accuracy in the vertical and deep range. So you know he's got the arm. He just has to have room to set up and fire. And that's something that the that the Giants can't give him right now. And if you're going to go by the model of the quarterback has to perform within his first two years and be, you know, and help them be a contender, he's going to need more help than what the Giants have been able to provide Eli Manning. And he's going to have, and so if they're not in that position to realistically do it, Haskins may not be a great match for who they are right now, but maybe if they're patient enough to wait another year or two, he might be able to be a good player for what they want the Giants to be. You know, Matt, it's kind of a, a side discussion here, but you, you talk about you know the short term and what the Giants want to be. Dave Gettleman has said, we're building, you know, we're not rebuilding, we're not tearing this apart. He said you can win while you try to build. I mean, do you does your gut tell you that you have to go all in on a rebuild or that you can that you can do it the way the Giants are trying to do it where you where you basically build and and find the quarterback when you think he's the right one? I think you can. I think that, I mean, it's different types of rebuilding, but you think about Seattle and you think about the fact that they had Russell Wilson, but they didn't have an offensive line and he was getting punished on a regular basis. And at the same time, while they, they went down from being a Super Bowl champion and a, and a you know championship contender over the past couple of years, they were able to get back into the playoffs this year and they were able to rebuild their line on the fly. Um, and and do that. I would say the Atlanta Falcons are another good example of a team that has been wildly inconsistent over the years. It seems like one year they're in a they're contending for a championship, the next year they're out of the playoffs. But what you found is that oftentimes that had to do with injuries, or they lacked an offensive line, and they had an incredible effort under Dimitrov um, to be able to rebuild that offensive line um, when they were transitioning away from the likes of Roddy White and Tony Gonzalez. And and they were bringing Devonta Freeman into the fold as the lead runner and getting rid of Michael Turner. When then when they were able to make that transition with the offensive line, they did it over the course of a summer, which is almost unheard of um, for the NFL. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you were to if the Giants were to get the caliber of line that was disciplined, had rapport, and they and and you had the kind of skill that you're looking for from the, those positions. And they and that starts to click up front. There's enough talent in the skill positions on that offense for them to thrive. And I think that you know it may not be ideal to everyone's specification of what kind of you know lead receiver they want and have now, or whether or not the the tight end is exactly what they're looking for. Um, and and again, the quarterback, you know, whether it's Eli this year um, or even next year, um, or if it's a new starter. But I think that they, it can get moving in the right direction. And it's just about also understanding that, you know, a lot of it, too, is teams tend to tear down to the studs when their front office completely changes. 
and 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 they and they end up cleaning house with teams. I mean, I was a Cleveland Browns fan growing up, and and watching the Cleveland Browns and all the iterations they've been through since um, that team came back after they moved the the original version of it moved to Baltimore. You know, you can see the difference between those teams. Cleveland, Baltimore has the same kind of makeup. They get the same kind of players that I used to watch when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s. Tough, physical, you know, smart players. They tend to like to run the ball. They like to play, you know, physical defense. And you look at the Cleveland Browns of past iterations since they came back to the town, and it's been like one range to the other of approach of how they're going to do things. And I think that, you know, with Gettleman, he's trying to keep a consistent approach. The giant scouts have always been known to be a quality scouting department. And I think that that's something that they're trying to just leverage that in a, in a slightly different way in terms of addressing their needs. And, and I think they have the confidence that they've got enough core players in place that they just need to get maybe four to five more on at various positions to be able to solidify this and they could be moving in the right direction again. Funny how it largely always comes down to the big guys in front who, who do the blocking. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, you do sound like, you know, Dave Gettleman, Pat Shermer have both said that they, they continue to insist. They believe they can play good football, good offensive football with Eli um, you know, Gettleman has said he thinks it's a, a false narrative that Manning can't play anymore. And I think we all know that a guy who's 38, 39, entering his 16th season isn't going to be physically exactly what he was, you know, 10 years ago. But I still think we saw enough at the end of the season, and I really wasn't intending to get into an Eli discussion with you. I I think we saw enough that there's reason to think that they're right in the short term. You, it sounds like you agree with that. I absolutely do, and I'm just going to give you a quick little analogy that I think will fit without even having to talk about it in football terms. Imagine the fact that you're hungry and you want to go to a local diner And you know that diner makes something that you really like, whether it's a Philly or it's some sort of chili or some sort of, you know, meatloaf that they make that's really good. And you know that that chef who's been doing it for the past, you know, that short order cook has been doing it for the past 14, 15, 18 years, however long he's been doing it, is great at it. And he has a certain set of directions on how to do it. And he knows his equipment and what's around him to do the job. Now, if you asked him to make something that, you know, Gordon Ramsay might make, you know, with, you know, his culinary background, he might panic and not play all. He may not be able to do that and it might not turn out to be a very good dish. But you know what he can do. And if you give him the environment to do it in. He's going to be fine, and it could actually end up being great and a far more satisfying meal as long as he has all the things he needs around him to do his job. And Eli Manning's like that short-order cook. He's never going to be Gordon Ramsay. He's never going to be the guy who's going to do the tremendously creative stuff. Um, But if you give him what he needs in that environment, and that's what they're, they're banking on, then he can be good enough for this team to win, even if he's never going to be, you know, the elite quarterback in the defined sense that no one's where there's no debate about it. 
thank you for that because I have been banging that drum for years now that that Eli is still Eli. He is what he is. And the biggest difference between what we see now and what we saw back in the day when the Giants were contending for Super Bowls, the biggest thing that we see that's different is the cast around him and the yes. the idea that they just they haven't run the football. Even last year with Saquon Barkley, they didn't run the football all that well. I think that some of the advanced stats that Bill Conley of, of SB Nation put together showed that uh, – they had, you know, they were they were way up at the top in explosive plays, but in terms of running efficiency, you know, down to down, getting what you should get out of every single play, they were, I think, thirtieth in the league. You know, and that was just my concern about Barkley pre-draft. If he didn't, if he got matched with a team that didn't have good blocking up front, because he'd have to create for himself, and the combination of poor blocking and the combination of his desire to be creative and hit those big plays sometimes leads to lack of mature decisions at times, which gets exacerbated with that, that offensive line. So he's a great back, but yeah, this is exactly what would happen when you get matched with a line that just isn't doing great work. And we all love, we all love those explosive plays, but I also, you know, but you, your offense doesn't function when you're among the league leaders in negative plays either. No. And that's why, you know, one of the things that's important about running back play is how good of a decision do they make when it comes to down and distance and field position? Um, because as, and Barkley is good. Bark, Barkley is way better than good, but he's, he's solid enough in that department. But at the same time, there are going to be times, especially as a rookie where you can get impatient. And if you, if you're starting from a negative place and suddenly the playbook is closed off and now you're not your offense has no shot of being efficient and no shot of being productive because you're starting off in a place where the percentages of plays that are going to the number of plays you can use and the percentage of success or likely success for those plays dwindles dramatically when it's now second and 15 or or third and 12 right so you know we we've we've gone off and talked a little bit about Eli now we've talked about the offensive line and the running game and I did say at the top of the show we were mostly going to talk about quarterbacks in the draft, didn't I? Hey, well, you know it all fits together, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. It's you know it all it 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 all works together. So, what I want to do, Matt, what I want to do, we talked about the sixth pick, and we talked about Dwayne Haskins, um, you know, and we talked a little bit about you know Drew Locke also maybe not being value at six. The Giants, thanks to the Odell Beckham trade, also have the 17th pick. Now, the way quarterbacks come off the board, who knows? Maybe Locke and Haskins are gone by the sixth pick. You know, more than likely, you know, one or both of them is probably gone by the 17th pick. But should either of those guys be available at 17? Do you see them, we'll go back to the value discussion, do you see one of them or both of them as value at 17? I would prefer Haskins at 17. I still don't see Locke as a value at 17. And we'll talk a little bit more about Locke. And I think the reason being is that Locke has the big arm. And you, you're going to hear from a, you know, sometimes we've heard from, you know, corporate media, the kind of the larger media 
um, outlets that have, you know, soundbite amount of time to discuss players may give a short and dirty comparison to Patrick Mahomes um, because of the ability to make off-platform throws. But Drew Locke doesn't have the discipline of footwork, doesn't have the discipline of tempo, doesn't really or his arm slots to actually make the decisions that he should make. He is a guy that has the talent that you could look at him, and if he were applying it correctly, he would be a top-five pick. But the problem is that when you watch his game, he's wildly inconsistent. And and I hate to uh, you know dis- link motivation to a player who, by all accounts, works hard and by all accounts um, you know, is a good team leader in the locker room from what I hear. But he's a young man, and young men sometimes are give are sometimes they're enabled in a way that if it's worked for them and at a certain level and they're doing well, then they don't have to address things that are really going to help them down the line. You can be a good guy, you can be a hard worker, and not always work on the right things. And one of the things that he doesn't work on and hasn't worked on enough yet is that his footwork is sloppy. It's he just walks back from the pocket. He's not always in the position he needs to be to throw the ball with balance. And that means that he's not going to throw it always accurately because he leans on that ability to throw off platform with his arm. And sometimes you'll see throws that he could set up and fire the ball with quicker rhythm. And so the route he's getting the ball there on time to the route and the spot it needs to be. And he doesn't do so because he's gotten away in high school and in college of being able to make some throws that others can't from an off-bounds position. Think Jay Cutler, think Matthew Stafford, think Jeff George, think you know, think guys like that. And coaches have been like, we've got other things to worry about. You know, that's something he can work on his own. And if he's productive for us, well, you know, I mean, we can talk to him about it, but that's up to him to work on it. And if we're winning or we're doing, or he's our best quarterback in that, you know, at that at this juncture doing those things than whatever. And I think that what happens is when he, I watched him against better opponents, like top sec teams, like Alabama and Florida and LSU and teams like that, you would see him try to play the way he's supposed to, which is with tempo, with better footwork. And he would look better in those instances where he executed that. But because he was playing teams that were able to break down his offensive line quicker, as the game started to progress and he had less and less time, it, you know, that kind of fell apart too for him. But he's also the consistency of being able to do it wasn't there because when you have all these layers of skills that you're learning as a quarterback, you can't just turn them on and off like a light switch. They have to be consistent like a thermostat. And he doesn't have a thermostat game. He has a light switch game right now. And you and for a quarterback in the NFL, those baseline skills need to be lights you know be thermostat consistent pat mahomes with his off balanced and footwork and all the things that he did one of the things that i always talk about with him is that people overemphasize all of that off platform stuff because if you actually watch his feet they were very quick and precise um and maybe they weren't always according to the to the you know very prototypical technique you're looking for but he threw from balanced positions and he got set in the way that he needed to whereas with Locke, you're not seeing that so i have real concerns about him being consistent he'll make throws that people go see that's a top five play right there and i'll go that's great you found the four leaf clover in the clover patch now 
don't but instead of telling me that there's four leaf clovers all over the clover patch why don't you see if you can find 15 more of those for me before you start telling me that this is the lucky clover patch that you found you know let me let me throw something else out for you in reference to to lock and something that that bothered me and it's not footwork it's not necessarily fundamentals something that bothers me when i watch drew lock play is the number of times he makes throws where his wide receivers get crushed. The number of times he basically throws wide receivers into trouble. Am I just, am I, you know, am I imagining that or is that something that speaks to his judgment or, or what does that speak to? I think it speaks to the same thing I'm talking with. It's just another symptom of the problem because when you, when you lean on your arm to bail you out and you, you're not thinking ahead. And if you're thinking ahead, you become more considerate of factors like where do I place the ball for the wide receiver? You know, because if you're, if you're Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or, or, you know, even Eli, you know, at his best is that when you have time to drop back, survey the field, do things in rhythm and you're playing with the tempo you need to so that you can anticipate information, you're not just trying to fit the ball to the open man. So if you're not throwing with anticipation, if you're if you're not throwing from a balanced position, you're more prone to throw inaccurate passes or force passes into situations um, that you shouldn't. And that's why he throws more hospital balls. Hospital balls. I, I I don't think I had heard that term before, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, some of the hits I saw some of the Missouri wide receivers take this year were yeah. were not good at all. No, and 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 you and you, we know that we've you see wide receivers, they understand they're they're getting paid lots of money, and that this is a profession, and at some point some of these wide receivers are going to go. Listen, I'm not going for that. I'm not going for that business. I I have five years left on my deal. I would like to make that kind of money and pay off my house. You know, like to have a college fund for my kid. Um, I'm not doing that. And some people will say, you know, diehard fans will say certain things about that. And I understand. I mean, there's a sentiment where you want guys to sacrifice your, for your team on a level that's big in certain games. You, you want to expect them to take that risk. But, you know, I still think that applies to everyday life. And, 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 you know, there's certain things on your job that if someone told you to, to make the ultimate sacrifice that wasn't in your job description. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the same people saying that stuff would, there are some situations that are parallel to their own lives where they probably don't do that at all. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I would, uh, I would, you know, jump off a cliff in Acapulco or something to get an interview with Eli Manning or something like that. But Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not standing in front of a bus and waiting for it to hit me. You know, I'm sorry. No, but yeah, but I'm glad that uh, to hear you you say that that I was right to be concerned about because that was one of the things that that jumped off, you know, as I was watching some of Drew Locke is, boy, his wide receivers are taking a lot of hits. Yeah. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, 
Trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. So let's let's turn to, we've talked about six, we've talked about 17. The next pick that the Giants have in the draft is at 37. And there's been some discussion of maybe the Giants would kick the can, you know, into the second round. Maybe they'll just kick the can into 2020 for someone like Justin Herbert or Jake Fromm. Let's keep it framed in terms of value at 37. In your mind, on the you know the quarterbacks that might be remaining, who are the value guys that might be there at 37? Who who could actually become at least you know capable NFL starters? I have one in mind, and he's actually on the top of my board um, overall. And he's light. He's being talked about as a second round pick right now, but may rise into the late first. And and again, if you have you're at 37, you can use that ammunition to trade back into the late first if you like this guy. And he reminds me a lot of Tony Romo. Um, and there are a lot of early second. They're not a lot, but there's some significant names early in the second round who've been good quarterbacks like Drew Brees. Will Greer is that player out of West Virginia. Um, I think Will Greer is an underrated quarterback who's creative, he's intuitive, and he's accurate. When I look at his accuracy and I scouted that, it was on the level of Murray and Haskins. I mean, this is a guy whose short and intermediate range on platform is at 70 or 80% with what I looked at. His vertical range was, you know, the the threshold for that's more like in the 40, 50% range of what's acceptable. And he's, you know, over 60% in two out of three categories, and he has a strong deep game. Now, I heard, you know, Phil Simms' son talk about, um, you know, talk about accuracy and how he needs to use every part of his body to throw the ball. But I know Mark and I have looked at that, and we both, I, I asked him about it after I looked, I heard that and said, Have you seen something that I haven't seen? And Mark's like, No, I mean, I, I've seen him load up the ball a little bit, but that's nothing major. And I've noticed him a lot on one step two-step, three-step drops and fire, throw the ball, you know, 40, 50 yards, pinpoint accurate to his receivers. He's a very aggressive downfield passer who also can win on the move. He's someone that he can extend plays. 
He can make off-script throws. He can throw receivers open with pressure bearing down on him. Now, he's not Patrick Mahomes in that quality, but he's good. He's good at those types of skills, and he has a better arm than I think that's described of him. It's just the fact is that he's not, you know, I mean, again, he led, I think, in the velocity um, testing for his arm, which was something that people really didn't expect from him. But this is a this is a smart quarterback who plays with a lot of guts, who is someone who it does understand how to attack the field, but he's also been very productive and accurate with his game. And I think that if you can get him in the early second round, you've won when it comes to this quarterback class. You've, you would absolutely come out winners with this um, in terms of making the right decision on, on the correct quarterback here. And he's actually the top quarterback on my board. I mean, I love Kyler Murray's potential. I like Dwayne Haskins. Um, but I think Will Greer, in terms of his play-action game, in terms of his ability to run multiple types of offenses, um, how he can manipulate the field, how pinpoint he is in the deep ranges of the field. I mean, he's made his receivers better. I, I've heard a lot about his receivers, you know, Gary Jennings Jr. and David Sills. And neither of those guys rated highly in my evaluations. Will Greer made them better. He made those guys look a lot better than they actually are as pro prospects. Um, The problem with him is that he just didn't audition very well at the Senior Bowl. He didn't stand out in in a huge way, just like Kirk Cousins and and Russell Wilson didn't stand out in a big way there either. I mean, auditions are a different animal than the actual onstage performance. Will Greer, when you put him on the stage of the NFL field or a college field, he knows how to play. And he and and when it's when it's audition time, he may get a little too excited early in a game or early on, and he may have one bad play, and and people will use that and extend that. But I I would actually watch the practice tape from from the Senior Bowl every night after after the uh, the event after each practice session. And he did fine. I, there was nothing that I was majorly concerned about um, from those practice sessions. But you hear about that in soap opera style format in terms of how the, the game's reported and how the events reported. And, and you know, it's kind of like watching these financial news network shows where the stock's up one day and way down the next. And, you, you know, you're going to ride if you ride that kind of train, you're not really. Um, doing a good job as an investor long term of what you're looking at, and I think Will Greer long term is that kind of player who can grow to be every bit the starter of you know maybe be the the top starter in this class. And if the Giants could get him, you know the six two two seventeen guy who I think if he were at Florida still probably would have gotten even more notoriety. Um, but he's a guy that. Um, I really believe you give him a year to sit and acclimate um, or at least part of the year to acclimate, you're going to get a player that's very promising and he may not be a world beater, you know, in terms of, you know, a potential all pro, you know, top elite quarterback, but I think he could get very close to that kind of production, um, especially as they build talent around him. So, if the Giants are intent on following, you know, what Dave Gettleman has referred to as the Kansas City model, which could be the old San Francisco 49ers model with Montana and Young and 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 all of those things. I mean, it's not original to Kansas City. It it sounds to me like 
like you're thinking that Greer is the right play, especially if they're able to use those first two picks they have in the draft to uh, to supplement the roster. Absolutely, I think that if they do that, they would. I know. I'll, I know. Just as you know, for whatever my opinion's worth on draft, uh, on outcomes of draft, I would find that to be a strategically strong set of moves. So let's talk about the other well we'll talk about some of the other prospects who could be drafted at 37 but while we're while we're talking about 37 we need to talk a little bit about Josh Rosen because i think the most people think that if the giants are going to make a play for Josh Rosen that it would probably cost them the 37th pick I'm one who's not in favor of them giving up a first-round pick for Rosen. Looking at the class and looking at Greer and looking at the other options, if they were able to make a play for Josh Rosen with that 37th pick and maybe with a later asset or two, is that, in your mind, a smart play as well, or is that one that you would stay away from? It's a smart play as well, and I think it's because you know, there's a few things, you know, if you look in the, if you look at what's been going on in terms of how would I best put this, how the, how the media looks at, you know, quarterbacks recently in terms of how they, how Josh Rosen performed this year, statistically, it was really bad. Um, but he didn't have the offensive line, didn't have the support. I thought he was the most technically sound quarterback available in any recent draft. Um, I loved his aggression. I think he has the ability to learn any offense. He's a pocket quarterback. You know, he reminds me of Matt Ryan with a bigger arm. And he was my top quarterback last year in that class. Um, and, you know, I had I had J- Jared Goff as the top quarterback in the class he was in. And we saw what happened to Jared Goff that first year. And then he was able to get with it, you know, get paired with a coach who was able to mold the scheme to the player as opposed to mold the player to the scheme. And you saw now Jared Goff in his third year played in Super Bowl, you know, and while people will say, well, he didn't play well in the Super Bowl, you could also say, well, listen, the genius Sean McVay, as good as he is, also had the hubris to come into that Super Bowl thinking that he could run the same small number of plays against Bill Belichick, the grand chess master, and not make any adjustments. And and leave Jared Goff kind of out to dry there in that recent, in that sense, um, because that's what happened. And but we don't talk about that. We talk about Jared Goff making bad throws. <laughs> and so um, you know Jared Goff's a de- a, a good quarterback. Um, Josh Rosen can be a good quarterback. Eli's brother was on ESPN. If you don't take my word for it, you can go on Peyton Manning's insider you know reviews of of Josh Rosen and talk about the positive things he saw from Rosen, you know, in, in the game that he studied or the games that he studied. Rosen is a guy that the, the reputation that he has as being kind of a malcontent when he was younger is something that probably is permeating this class. And people are probably trying to say, well, if they, if they're unloading him, it must be because he doesn't play well with others. He doesn't get along well with others. It's the same stuff we saw at UCLA. And I'll, and I'll say this, maybe some of that's true. I mean, I do know this. I've talked to people who worked with Josh Rosen in high school. And Josh Rosen said something so off-putting at, at 
Stanford just before he was about to get his scholarship there in his final interview that they decided they were going to go in a different direction. And that was his dream school to play for. But he admitted to that. He admitted that publicly. He said it was something he had to grow up from and he came in pretty cocky. But he is one of those guys that asks why, asks how, wants to know the reason behind things. And sometimes the old school of the NFL didn't like that. Jim Moore Jr. is an old school, is a son of an old school NFL coach, kind of a, and he hasn't always been known from what I know, from what I hear as always being the most flexible about things. I mean, Brett Hundley, I remember playing for him, didn't have, get the chance to make to any type of line calls, and he got pummeled all the time. And the, the rate of what they did on offense was just was just crazy. And he talked about Brett Hundley as a player who wasn't going to be able to adjust quickly to the NFL. You know, and and Brett Hundley when he came in with Green Bay, while he hasn't had a had the career that you would hope for, he came into the NFL and led the preseason in quarterback rating and surprised the Packers with how fast, how quickly he got off the ground. And part of it was how good he was at being able to learn information that Jim Mora implied that he couldn't. So, you know, when I look at Rosen's relationship to that coaching staff, I think at the same time, too, that some of that can be put on on these coaches. Um, so Rosen, to me, I don't think is – as much of an issue from an off-field standpoint, as much as it is, is that he just needs support around him. And the Giants may provide a similar situation, but maybe slightly better in terms of, you know, the caliber of receiving talent, even without Odell Beckham Jr., and with the offensive line in the direction that it's going. Um, so it would be, I think if they get him, they end up with a guy that could potentially be a franchise quarterback. You know, the only other thing I wanted to say about Rosen is people talk about the the statistics from his rookie year. I look at the situation in Arizona, and I don't think you can hold anything that happened in Arizona against him. You're talking about a team that, that fired its offensive coordinator midway through the season, had a, a rookie head coach who was in over his head and got fired after the season, Terrible offensive line, you know, not much around him, a team that justifiably won only three games. I think it's, you know, as you said, you know, other rookie quarterbacks have have compiled bad statistics in their first year. Eli Manning was bad as a rookie. I I think it's just hard to to hold anything that happened in Arizona last year against Josh Rosen. I think I think he's wherever he lands in 2019. It's a clean slate start over for Rosen. Yep, absolutely. And that's I think that's one of those things that it's hard for people to understand that sometimes, and they they don't realize that this is this is a game that does require a lot of surrounding talent to help, and a lot and an acclimation period. And if your offensive lot, if your offensive head coach didn't really have a game plan until preseason because he literally said we're going to wait and see what people do well and don't do well um to to build a scheme around that it sounds good on the surface but it didn't work out in execution because what you ended up with was an overly dense disorganized mess and that's not helpful when you're trying you know with quarterbacking you can't think you have to react to what you see there's all these layers of information that you have to understand along with applying your technique well which is 
your technique is something that has to be kept up with the way that a musician keeps up with their technique on a daily basis. And if you're having to overthink basic things, basic layers of information that you've already spent years practicing, and you're having to focus on those types of things because of the fact that the offense is making you slow down and overthink things, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I've always joked around that Jared Goff having to learn the learn the West Coast offense, which is like the the much more souped up version of the air raid that he played, because the air raid's kind of like a distilled version of the West Coast offense, is kind of like having to learn Chinese in like two months and then go to like go to China where only people are speaking Chinese and suddenly you've had a little too much to drink and you have to use the restroom and you have to ask the question <laughs> How do I use the bathroom and, and fluent Chinese and have someone say to you, you're going to you go three blocks down this way, go to the first building on the left. It's a yellow building with a red door. Knock three times on the door and go up these five flights of stairs. And there's a purple door and an old woman's going to answer and just ask her, let her know you need to use the men's room. And she'll take you to a door with a star and a dragon on it. And in the <laughs> amount of time it meant I said that. Imagine that said at the same rate in Chinese, and you've only studied it for three months. You're basically gonna, you're basically gonna um, need a cleanup on aisle five. You know, oh, I was gonna no say all of that while you bladder. have to pee. All yeah. Of that while... <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically what happened to him. Is he wet his pants pretty much every time <laughs> there was a blitz protection that needed to be called, or that there was a play call in Jeff Fisher's offense that, even though the offense wasn't great. He was having to learn this stuff and overthink this kind of thing. And that's that's the problem. that He had the extreme of what happens to rookie quarterbacks everywhere um, when they have to learn a dense offense. And what made Sean McVay so great was he limited the offense because he decided that let's put the, it into the hands of the players to diagnose things on the field. We'll run some of the same similar plays so they can read how the defense is adjusting and then come back to those plays and make adjustments as opposed to having an encyclopedia and going, you know that one play we played on third and one in the middle of the second quarter? Let's go back to that in, you know, in the fourth quarter. I mean, you can do that when you have a quarterback who's played for 18 years. You, know, you don't do that with a quarterback who's played for one. So before I let you pontificate about Brett Rippon for a little while, <laughs> what I want to do, there's two other guys I think we need to talk about while we're at 37. We need to talk about Daniel Jones. We need to talk about Jarrett Stidham. Let me quickly say about Jones, we know all about David Cutcliffe. We know all about all of the connections with the Giants. We know all about all of those things, and we know, you know, Daniel Jones looks the part. The other thing I want to say about Stidham is it brings up for me, you know, what Mark Schofield has talked about. So-so career, great at the Senior Bowl. And the thing I want you to address with Stidham is, is which one do you pay more attention to? Yeah, those are great questions. And let's just start with this. Listen, I know that David Cutcliffe is probably a little nearer and dearer to the hearts of anyone who's who's watched Eli Manning play and admired what Eli Manning has been able to accomplish for the Giants over the course of his career. But let's understand something. David Cutcliffe, as good of a coach as he is, as good of a teacher that he is, you still have to have great students. And what about all the other quarterbacks who've entered the NFL as a David Cutcliffe guy who didn't make it like the Mannings? You know, Is that to blame Cutcliffe? No, because Cutcliffe's done his job. 
but he's a teacher. There's only so much that he can do. So sometimes I think this whole Cutcliffe influence thing has a little bit more influence and inflated value to a value to whoever's making these decisions than it should, you know, because it's, you know, you can have, you can have a great teacher, but unless you're a great student, you know, I know quarterback coaches and many of them are pretty honest about saying, Hey, I've, I've coached some really good students and I and hope, and I, I've been able to impart things on them, but you know, me bragging about me having these guys as a student that helps from marketing but let's be honest, it's just the fact that I inherited a great student, you know, who was able to take the information I could impart and use it efficiently. So, you know, when you look at Daniel Jones, he is exactly what the old school approach to NFL evaluation of the position is, which is he's big. He came. He's intelligent in terms of book smarts. He's tough in the pocket. I really like his toughness in the pocket. He can make plays under pressure and just come back for more punishment. Um, and he has a good arm, but here's the thing. He doesn't put his game together very well. He has lots of miscommunications with his receivers. He's not always accurate. His footwork lags behind his thought processes. So he's a little bit slow to be able to set up and he doesn't play in the tempo that you're looking for, which is very important in terms of setting up everything you do in your game from that standpoint. Um, you know, he's someone where, you know, it's like, he has some quiet footwork, but again, it's one of those situations where it's just a big sign that he's, his mind's not in sync with his body. And so for his disconnection, slow down his processing. And I don't think he reads coverage very well in terms of identifying where the defender who's maybe ancillary to the main coverage he's not seeing accounting for that defender and oftentimes gets passes cut off um, or undercut in ways that shouldn't. Um, he's also has a lot of passes batted down. I mean, like people worry all the time in the casual sense that Kyler Murray was going to have a lot of passes batted down because he's short, but I've scouted but the same amount of games for those guys. And I believe that Daniel Jones had 15 passes knocked down. Kyler Murray had one. So, you know, it's it, and we know Daniel Jones. I mean, he's six, five, six, four or six, five, excuse me. So that's a you know, that's an interesting thing about him. I just don't think Daniel Jones, he's just not quite accurate enough in the vertical game. He's just not quite accurate enough in the deep game. And I don't think that the processes he has really support that well. And as far as Jared Stidham, yeah, I think Jared Stidham's a good auditioner. He's a guy who. He looks the part. He's got really strong athletic ability. When you ask him to throw in drills, you know, he's going to do things that look really impressive. But when you ask him to actually integrate all of these skills onto the field in game situations, that's where things kind of are difficult. I think he's the guy that is going to get a lot of love for the promise that he has because, you know, he can. he's very good with play fakes. He's quick. He's tough. He's got the big gun. Um, he can cycle through his reads, um, but I think he rushes throws. He plays at a tempo that sometimes is too fast. It's kind of a breakneck tempo, and so he's a little too far ahead of himself when he plays, and that creates just as many issues as it does for someone who's playing behind tempo. Um, so I think he doesn't account for coverage the way he should. He can get reckless and too invested in the plays. Um, when pressure, you know, forces him to prolong a play or drive, get himself out of the pocket. Um, and I think even when he's in the pocket, 
he'll see, you know, the big thing about quarterbacking for me that you want to look at is when you see the defender in a position against a receiver and that receiver has leverage before he breaks open. So say, for instance, the receivers run a post route and he gives a little bit of a nod to the corner and it forces the defender playing over top of him to slightly turn his chest towards the sideline. And you know that the receiver is going to break inside at that moment where the defenders turn inside. That's the leverage you want to get you to be set and ready to throw you. And you throw with anticipation, you're throwing at that point, the ball comes out there a lot. The difference between the great quarterbacks in the NFL and guys who either aren't good enough to start or are just good enough to hold on to a job for a little while until they find someone else are the guys who, when they see that leverage, they wait another beat or two to see the receiver break open. And by the time they do that, the defender's already recovered and can undercut the ball or a safety on the other side of the field can come across and cut off the pass Um, because they're waiting too long to say, did I really see what I just saw? And you can see that in their footwork with the way that they tap their foot or hop another step or two or take an extra hitch when the ball should have come out. And when I look at Daniel, when I look at Stidham, He's waiting. He's like, did I really see what I just saw? Um, so he ends to, and he either waits too long and th- forces the ball in a bad situation, or he turns away from a route that will break open and goes to something else to see that's quite obvious. So what that tells me is that his game isn't integrated yet. It's easy to look great throwing to a route that you know isn't covered against air, you, you know, uh, in a drill or seven on sevens where the risk isn't huge to make those daring throws. There are a lot of people who audition better than they perform, and I think he's one of those guys. All right, so let's turn to a little bit of talk about some of the day three guys, and and we'll just call this what it is. It's the Brett Rippon section of the show. You know, <laughs> a nod to Mark Schofield. I know that uh, you know you you indicated earlier that that you're also kind of a, a, on the on the Rippon. Uh, sort of bandwagon fan club whatever you want to call it and I know what Mark sees because we've talked about it Um, what do you see in Ripon and is he a guy who could really come out of this class as a as a day three as a fourth round guy and wind up being one of the better quarterbacks in this class I think he can and and I think the the reason is is that if he develops just a little bit more velocity and accuracy on some of the vertical and deep throws, he is a guy who's good enough to be a productive starter. I think he has the best footwork in this class. He executes all forms of drops with precision, rhythm, and efficiency, and he's got tempo. There are a lot of quarterbacks who don't play with good tempo in the in college game, and he's always playing at a strong tempo. And you can see it whenever he's giving – a variety of play fakes and selling those or whether he's manipulating defenders with the way that he turns his body. Um, and he's also someone that's tough in the pocket in terms of being able to take hits. Um, but he can climb and slide and flush from, um, from the pocket and still deliver with pinpoint accuracy because I grade by general accuracy and pinpoint accuracy and, and general accuracy is kind of what was like, I always joke that Mike Holmgren got dressed down a little bit by Bill Walsh when they were working together after Montana threw a ball to Rice that was good enough for Rice to stretch and catch. And he and he said, good throw, you know, to, to 
and praised Joe, Joe Montana. And Walsh came over and said, don't you ever tell him a throw like that's a good throw. And it went on to give him a mini treatise on what a good throw was in terms of how it should look and what pinpoint accuracy was. So I always joke that general accuracy is what Mike Holmgren before um, Bill Walsh's dressing down would have said was good enough. <laughs> and then you have the Bill Walsh standard. Um, and so you, I, I, I grade both because sometimes you have to have the Mike Holmgren standard, you know, the pre-Walsh standard of that. And then sometimes it's more important that it has to be pinpoint. And I think Rippon has very good pinpoint accuracy in a lot of his throws. Um, and so I like the toughness with his game. I think that's someone that at worst – he, you know, if I'm completely wrong about him, I think at worst he develops into a Case Keenum type of player. I think at his best he can be more like what people envision Teddy Bridgewater to be before, as he was coming on before his injury. Someone that can buy time in the pocket, someone that can, you know, find the open man and throw with anticipation and with good accuracy and show toughness. And so I like his game. Um, I think that he is actually one of the top five quarterbacks in this class. Um, I wouldn't touch Daniel Jones with a 10-foot pole, um, but I would take Brett Rippon in an instant at probably, you know, at the place where I'd probably take Brett Rippon like in the second or third round if I had to, if I was forced to choose him or Daniel Jones or Drew Locke, um, you know, or some of the guys that we mentioned there. But I think that, yeah, as a third-day pick, he's an absolute bargain to take a uh, a shot on because at worst you get a competent backup, but I think that he's, he offers more than that. All right. Final question for you. And, you know, I don't want to go through every single one of the draftable day three guys, right. but I'm going to throw a, a Pat Shermer quote at you. And I'm going to ask you, you know, for one guy we haven't talked about. So put yourself in the situation where you're the quarterback coach. Pat Shermer uses the phrase, he says, when he meets these guys, when he looks at quarterbacks, one of the questions he asks himself is, is this a guy that I really want to coach? Is there a guy among the quarterbacks, the day three guys, whatever, there a guy that we haven't talked about yet that if you were a quarterback coach, you would say, I really want to work with that guy and see what we can do? Yes. And there's three guys, and I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna mention the other two by name. I won't mention much about their game, and then I'll mention the guy that I really like. There's Tyree Jackson. There's his son Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one I don't think is gonna happen. And I don't think it's gonna happen. And then there's Easton Stick out of North Dakota State. Um, I think Easton Stick is a tough, quick, aggressive quarterback who is really comfortable in the pocket. Someone who can, who knows how to maneuver tight space as well and still be in a position to throw the ball. He has really, he's underrated as an athlete. I mean, his, his 20 shuttle and three cone drill, he could be a slot receiver with the kind of speed and quick or the kind of quickness and change of direction skill that he exhibited a 6.65 three cone drill. I mean, that's like, that's like elite slot receiver quickness and a 4.05 20 shuttle. And he runs a four, six I mean, he literally is, he's a six, one, 224 pound athlete who runs with the quickness of a slot receiver and he's physical. And he is someone that can run the ball for you, 
but he has the aggressiveness to throw downfield. He makes some really nice throws. He makes some really strong decisions at times. He's a battler. And I think the issue with him is that he's been inconsistent at times. There's times that he misses throws that you're like, how did you not see that, you know, that post breaking wide open? And why did you throw it over here to the opposite side? Um, you know, some of those types of things that I think he can get better at. They're just kind of decision-making things that he can continue to work on because I see moments where he does process the field very well. It's not like he, whenever he has an opportunity to process the field that he messes it up. It's just that he has some plays where you're like, that was some really bad word choice in that speech you made. But there are other things you said that were so eloquent that I'm just going to have to think that you really didn't think about that or prepare for that as well as you could have. Um, so Easton Stick out of North Dakota State, that's a guy that, yeah, if I could get at the end of a draft, um, I think he's that kind of guy that would endear himself to teammates and, and be the kind of guy that might be able to outplay his draft position. All right. Hey, we always appreciate you, uh, you know, spending some time with us. You know, we've pretty much gone uh, all the way through the uh, the quarterback class. Uh, hopefully, uh, Giants fans have have learned a few things. I mean, we know that uh, we know that you're you're on the Brett Rippon bandwagon, and that you think uh, Dave Kettleman should have his head examined if he drafts Daniel Jones. But uh, <laughs> what I hope to do, uh, you know. Let's do this again. Let's get you back on to talk uh, wide receivers and tight ends. We're kind of going to skip the running back discussion since the Giants have a guy who's not half bad. Yeah, he's all right. Yeah, but sure, uh, but let's let's do that again. You know, before we get to draft day, we'll get you back on to talk uh, tight ends and wide receivers. And uh, before I let you go, why don't you just uh, tell folks uh, where they can find your work if they're not sure? And I know your uh, your your draft guide uh, is is available now, so make sure people know how to get it. Sure. Um, first thing, the RSP publication, um, you get a draft guide that's devoted to quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end, and it's a thousand pages on a PDF. Probably about 450 of them you're going to read. The other thousands just supporting material. So if you want to be taken through my scouting process and see how that works, you'll learn a lot about evaluation um, and the details of how to evaluate those positions. Um, you'll find that there. But you'll also get rankings on players, skill set breakdowns, really in-depth work on, on about 129 of those players will be greatly in-depth. And then you'll still get a good overview of about 194 overall prospects at those four positions. You also get a post-draft guide that comes with it after the week after May. So if you're a fantasy player, I also am a senior staff writer, footballguys.com, one of the oldest and well-known fantasy football sites out there. And I, I gear that towards fantasy owners who play in redraft and dynasty leagues. And you can be put on, you'll also be put on my newsletter that comes out monthly from um, June through December to talk about future prospects and how this current class is performing in the league. Um, you can find my work at www.mattwaldmanrsp.com where Mark and I put out a lot of information uh, with video formats of, of you know breakdowns of players. Um, I also have a YouTube channel called Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room that has nearly 400 um 400 shows on it, ranging from three to five minutes, isolating a couple of plays to hour-long shows devoted to guys like 
Daniel Jones, Dwayne Haskins, Kyler Murray, Will Greer, um, some stuff that even Mark and I have done together on some of these players like Stidham and Greer. Um, and so, and you can buy the RSP at mattwaldman.com. And that's where you can get it and, you know, take a tour or a video tour of it and see, see what it's all about. I know between the two of you guys, it is an education in quarterback play and, and how to study the position. And we always appreciate you uh, taking some time to, uh, to talk with us. Ed, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. All right, and we'll do this again. We'll talk uh, wide receivers and tight ends the next time. Beautiful. All right, take care. Hey, you too. All right, Giants fans, we thank Matt Waldman for spending some time with us. That is our show for today. We uh, hope you enjoyed it. As we said during the show, we will have Matt back again to talk wide receivers and tight ends. Please remember to subscribe to Big Blue View Radio on all of your favorite podcast applications. Make sure you're also listening to the shows done by Chris Flum and Dan Pizzuta. Uh, Please remember, if you haven't signed up to uh, participate in the community at BigBlueView.com, do that. All right, thank you, Giants fans, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye now.